You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It starts in a garden with two humans and a talking serpent, which is a most peculiar way to begin a story, isn't it? The serpent says, though God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice, this is not the devil. It's not Satan. The serpent is described as one of the beasts of the field that God had made. Cunning, yes. Sly, clever, but not evil. Notice also that this is not a snake. It's a serpent with legs. That talks. Not your garden variety snake in the least. And the story says that this walking, talking beast of the field, this sly, clever serpent created by God, begins its conversation with the two humans by misstating a commandment given to the first human, the Adam, the Adam, saying, though God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, which is not exactly what God said. God said, from every fruit of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat, for on the day you eat from it, you are doomed to die. Which might make us wonder here at the beginning, was the beast being intentionally misleading? Is this the first recorded example of gaslighting? Or was the commandment that was first told to the human Adam already being retold differently now that there's a second human, Eve, on the scene. Or maybe the rumor grapevine in the garden was just simply faulty. And as the word spread throughout all the creatures, the poor, innocent serpent was told a distorted version of the original commandments. In response to the serpent's misstatement, the woman interrupts this talking creature, shutting the beast down with what is the second misstatement in this story. She says, from the fruit of the garden's trees we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it, lest you die. from what what God said, isn't it? And at this point in the story, the serpent engaged in a little bit 
more misdirection, spinning the outcome of what will happen if they eat the fruit. You shall not be doomed to die. For God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. If we listen, behind the certain serpent statement lies a question for those first humans and for us. Is God trustworthy? At this point in the story, the woman deliberates. She considers the tree of knowing good and evil, and she sees the tree was good for food, and she sees that it was a delight to the eyes. And here in the, the storyteller gives us an intentional echo from the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, which says, And the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at and good for food. She sees what God has created. And in her deliberations, as she is directed or perhaps misdirected by the serpent, the woman comes to desire what would make one wise. What the text says is the ability to discern between choices. That's good, right? The woman desires the good. Desires often get the best of us, though, don't they? In Hebrew, it's the root word, it's the same root word as covet, which we find in the Ten Commandments. We may desire many things, success, security, to love, to create, and in and of themselves, much of what we desire are not bad things at all. But the trouble comes, the trouble comes when we desire what is not ours, as in the commandment not to covet, which reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And when that desire for something threatens our relationships with God, with others, even with ourselves, that's when we get into trouble. Eve and the man have lived in the garden, the Garden of Eden. The Hebrew word for Eden has the meaning of pleasant or delight. In this garden of delight, the two have been living with the blessings of creation in trust of the goodness of the creator, staying away from only one tree while in a garden full of trees, pleasing to the eye and good for food. The serpent offers another viewpoint, one rooted not in the goodness and generosity of God, but instead focused on limitations and boundaries, on what the two lack. And suddenly the man and the woman see the tree not through trust, but through mistrust. Now, if we're not careful, we often imagine this scene with the woman and the serpent, and the man is off somewhere else in the garden watching Kentucky basketball on ESPN or something. 
But the text says something different. It says she took of, the, of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her man with her, and he ate. The man who was with her all the time, silent, standing by. Now, why didn't he say something? It's curious, isn't it? He participates in the deception by not correcting the serpent's misstatement from the beginning. Now, later on, if we continue this story, there will be finger pointing, lots of it. The man will say to God, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Which is a neat trick to lay the blame on both the woman and God in one swoop as he scapegoats to hide the truth of his own desire. And in turn, the woman will go ahead and just place the blame on the serpent entirely. Neither one of them takes responsibility for their actions. The story is one of disruption. Disruption of relationships between God and humans, between the man and the woman, even between the humans and the created order in which they live. Now there is distrust. And as a result, there will be tension, separation, and hardship. Now notice that despite what theologians for centuries have written, sin is not named here in this story. The word does not show up in Genesis until the next chapter with the story of Cain and Abel. And then human evil is referenced even later in chapter 6 with the story of Noah. We often tend to read this story with an agenda of blame. Asking whose fault is it? Where did all this trouble come from? And we call this story the fall, even though those words are not in the text. And that framing of the story becomes a lens which shapes the way we understand it. But perhaps, rather than an origin story of sin, which is not part of the text, after all, what we're offered here in the second and third chapter of Genesis is a portrait of the human condition, of the way we are. And we're invited to see ourselves in this story. So rather than some fall from grace, we can start to see this as a tale of intrigue and misdirection and the emergence of moral agency into the story of humanity. Because I think if we look closely, what we find are two human beings developing self-awareness. The man and the woman is the result of eating the fruit of the tree of knowing good and evil. All of a sudden, look down and realize that they're naked. Now, they were naked before. The story points that out at the end of chapter 2. But they see their nakedness now. Which illustrates in a very embodied way that they are now seeing themselves through the eyes of the other. 
self-awareness happens to us all, doesn't it? As we begin to see ourselves through the eyes of others, we start to look at ourselves and think, well, maybe my nose is too big, or my hair is too frizzy, or maybe we see a special talent in ourselves that others have recognized in us. Self-awareness is not good or bad in and of itself. It's a part of what it means to be human. And indeed, God recognizes that in this story. God gives the humans clothing, a way of shielding themselves from the gaze of the other. In addition to self-awareness, the man and the woman also come to see the garden through the eyes of the other, of the serpent. No longer as a garden of delight, but now with distrust. And that distrust leads to separation. It leads to coveting. It leads to brokenness. And it will ultimately be shown as a deadly way of living in community, which the tragic story of their children, Cain and Abel, will reveal. But self-awareness does not have to end in alienation and broken relationships. There's another way to see ourselves and the world. There's another point of view in this story. We can instead choose to see through God's eyes and embrace God's creative impulse that has been empowered throughout this story by divine love. Can we see through the eyes of the one who created the world and us? The one who looked upon creation and declared it good. Who formed the first human from dust and said, very good. Fear and distrust do not have to have the last word. Our second reading finds Jesus in the wilderness, far from a garden of delight. He's newly baptized by John, and he's heard a voice from the heavens pronounce, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Both we, the readers, and Jesus now know his identity as the beloved child of God. And Jesus is alone for 40 days of fasting, meditation, and prayer in preparation for beginning his ministry. And the gospel writers bring to life some of the struggles of this time of discernment that he is in with a story of temptation and the personification of a tempter who comes to Jesus with three tests, each one of them questioning his understanding of his own identity as God's beloved the revelation of his baptism, his purpose, and his ministry. If you're the beloved child of God, where will you get nourishment? The tempter asks. Can you trust God to provide? Why don't you just turn those stones to bread? Or if you're the beloved child of God, where will you find security? Who's going to take care of you? And finally, how will you have enough things, enough wealth, enough power, enough influence to make a difference? 
Much like the misdirection of the serpent in Genesis, behind each of these temptations is the deeper question of distrust and fear. You're out here on your own, aren't you? God doesn't have your back. You'll never have enough. You'll never be enough on your own. And in response, Jesus reaches back to the traditions of his people, to the stories of hard times and of God's liberating work with them. And each time, Jesus rejects the temptation to succumb to fear, to rely on himself alone and to grasp after the role of God in his life for himself. Instead, each time Jesus chooses to see himself through the eyes of divine love, which will shape his ministry and the arc of his life, remain true to his calling as God's beloved child. Both of these stories, I think, invite us to see ourselves and the world around us, not through the lens of distrust, of fear, of lack, but through the eyes of God's creative, unconditional love for us and for all the world. One of my favorite movies is Groundhog Day. In it, Bill Murray's character Phil, you may remember, is an obnoxious, self-centered TV weatherman traveling with his crew to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to be there on Groundhog's Day, to cover what Phil calls the weather forecasting rat. Will Punxsutawney Phil see a shadow or not? And it's Phil's, Bill Murray's, fourth year of covering the event, and he absolutely hates it, and he makes it miserable for everyone else. A blizzard forces them to stay an extra night. His alarm goes off at 6 a.m. and he wakes up to Sonny and Cher singing, I got you, babe, just as he did the day before. Only once again, it's February 2nd. And Phil discovers that he's stuck in this loop, reliving the same day over and over again, and he's the only one who knows it. At first, he uses it to his advantage, of course, he would. He tries to get Rita, Andy McDowell's character, to like him, but she knows who he is, and she knows how self-centered he is. So Phil keeps trying to manipulate her into liking him, but he cannot change the way she sees him in just a day. So at the repeat of each day, he's learning more about her. And their conversations go better. But in the end, he always reveals himself to be the same selfish man that he was at the beginning. So eventually, in the movie, he stops trying to get her to like him. His desire to get her to like him fades. And instead, he begins to see the world through her eyes. The eyes of a kind, caring person who's not seeking to control or manipulate others. And it's at that point that Phil begins to change. His desire shifts from possessing Rita to being the kind of person that Rita is. 
So he goes to the library and he reads. He learns to play piano. He starts to help people. Over and over again, he catches a boy falling out of a tree, fixes a flat tire. He performs the Heimlich maneuver on the town mayor when he's choking in the restaurant until Phil changes so much that at the end of another repeat day, there's a celebration of him as the hero of the town. And Phil now, I think, sees himself through the eyes of kindness, not of fear or cynicism. And it's that shift in how he sees himself that allows him to be transformed. And Rita now sees him the same way. And it's only then that the curse of Groundhog's Day is finally lifted and Phil finds in the morning that it's February 3rd. Lent is here again. We've been here before. We've done this all before. But this year, let us receive it not as a repeat, but as a time of invitation to see with new eyes, not seeking to find blame, not with a distorted vision of distrust which the serpent and the tempter offer us, but this time may we see the beauty and delight that God sees in us and in each other. May we know ourselves worthy of love. And if there is brokenness in us, may we hear God's voice calling us good and know deep in our bones that we are worthy of careful mending by God's love. We are always surrounded by voices of distrust, by purveyors of fear. Let us listen instead to the voices of blessing. And as God's beloved, may we learn to see the world, to see one another, to truly see ourselves with the compassionate, loving eyes of the one who created us for goodness and for delight. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.